This is Living While Dying, an ALS story from Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Kathy Warzer. I'm betting that no matter your age, you've been tested many times and in many different ways. One's patience, marriage, or faith can be tested. Students have tests to take, and if you're sick or showing signs of illness, there is a dizzying array of medical tests to endure. Those medical measurements can be dehumanizing and depressing, especially if they benchmark a continuing physical or mental decline. Bruce Kramer had to go through a battery of tests before finally being diagnosed with ALS, a fatal motor neuron disease, in December of 2010. Throughout his life with the disease, Bruce would make quarterly visits to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, for tests that he came to dread. Mouse grid. One. Four. Three. Seven. Kramer's doing some work on his computer, wearing a small headset with microphone so he can use speech recognition software that helps him surf the web and dictate emails and chapters for a new book he's writing. For a man whose energy continues to wane, he's pretty busy, but he gets tired, very tired. His weak arms and legs feel leaden, spent, and very sore as if he's biked a 100 miles, something he used to do before ALS rendered his limbs useless. The energy it takes to eat and talk can be exhausting. The physical fatigue practically drapes itself over Kramer. I actually experience it visually. It comes down over my eyes. The world gets a little grayer. My um, breath comes a little bit more difficultly. My hearing, I feel like I'm underwater. And the fatigue has been with me from the very beginning. The effort it takes to get out of the house can be too tiring, so Bruce Kramer recently canceled his quarterly Mayo Clinic visit. But he admits there's not much left for the doctors and staff at Mayo's ALS Clinic to do for him anyway. Since being diagnosed in December of 2010, Kramer's doctors have been monitoring his progression using a variety of tests and something called the ALS Functional Rating Scale, or ALS-FRS. It's a 48-point system that gives doctors a snapshot of the patient's functional status, how they're moving, breathing, swallowing, and patients are given a numerical score for each function. Kramer's Mayo physician is Dr. Lyle Jones. We know that over time, as the patient gets weaker, we see that scale decline. We see that number get smaller with time. It's not certainly a replacement for assessing the patient in person and determining how the disease is affecting them personally, but it does give us a perspective on on how they're doing over time. And it's also a useful research tool so we can measure how a patient might respond to therapy or an investigational treatment approach, how that might affect their ALS-FRS score. Are we to assume then, doctor, that the lower the score, the more likely the patient is to die? Usually when the patient nears the end of life with ALS, the ALS-FRS score is lower. Again, it depends uh, on a number of uh, factors. Patients who begin with weakness of the breathing and swallowing muscles may not have an overall score as low as some other patients who have preserved function in those areas. So it's a useful tool, but it's not a perfect predictor of uh, how long a patient will live with ALS. And to be honest, we really don't have a, a really ideal tool to measure or predict how long a patient will live with ALS. From uh, your experience, could a patient live longer than you thought given their numbers? 
Absolutely. The numbers are a useful snapshot, if you will, a summary tool, but but nothing really replaces how the patient is doing. And so if I have a patient who has a low number, but they're looking good and feeling good, I, I feel good too. I watched myself go from a 43 to now I'm in the teens. And um, I once asked Dr. Jones, well, what happens if I hit zero? Do I die? And he kind of said, well, not necessarily. So, you know, the rating scale is helpful, I think, for them to decide where they need to put their resources. You do get tired of the measurement. And I've gotten to the point now with the rating scale where I can talk very um, openly about how, well, maybe I'm a two here, but I'm doing this, so that kind of qualifies as a three, but I'm not doing this, so maybe I'm a one. The medical focus on ratings, scales, and function tests initially did not sit well with Kramer. I didn't like being measured like this. I, I got used to it because I realized that it helped them to help me. But you have to get over that. When you look at various medical tests, Bruce, and, and the measurements specifically for ALS, the, the specific numbers given to various function, it must be odd to think, in a sense, they're measuring mortality, which is what it is in, in its essence, right? Yeah, in a way. When I first realized that there was a scale and where I was on the scale, you know, I treated it for two years as a competition. I didn't want to lose. Well, you know, we're, we're all going to lose. I've had to negotiate that. And I think part of the negotiation was that um, as I came into Mayo and, and worked with this clinic, part of it was that I just wanted them to see me as the human I was and not a collection of symptoms or a set of measurements. And to their credit, they're very good at that. We almost always talk about something else before we finally turn to ALS. It's an important principle to, to recognize that we treat patients. We don't treat the numbers that we derive from measuring them. So if I have a patient who is clinically doing well, if they're sleeping well and they have uh, relatively good energy and are doing the things that they like to do, if I see a, a number that is declining, it doesn't concern me as much as if I see a patient who isn't performing well or isn't doing well. So uh, it's always important to bring that discussion back to the patient. And that brings us back to Bruce Kramer, who has felt as if he's been, in his words, winding down for many months as more and more of his body's functions diminish due to ALS. Dr. Jones says as a patient with ALS nears the end of their life, there are usually problems with breathing and getting enough nutrition. So regardless of where a patient's ALS began in their body, if it began in a hand or a foot, uh, eventually when it comes to affect those muscles, that's usually what determines uh, the timing uh, of the end of life. So death in ALS usually evolves from weakness in those muscles, not being able to get enough nutrition by eating or not being able to breathe. We have a number of different tools to help with the concern or worry or discomfort that comes with not being able to breathe or get enough air. And we have ways to help with uh, nutrition as well 
if, if needed. A person like Bruce Kramer walks in with a relative uh, decent function, although diagnosed with ALS, and over time, as other patients do, they uh, deteriorate. Uh, they progress and become weaker and weaker and uh, ultimately die. How do you and your staff handle being with these folks and knowing that the outcome is not going to be positive? It's hard to see patients get worse over time, but the patients themselves are remarkable people. Uh, You really learn what strength means, seeing a person deal with this disease uh, over time. Uh, But it is is a challenging disease to deal with. And so we we also have hope. Um, Hope can be sustaining for the patients and for us as well. We hope that uh, in the future we'll have better treatments for this disease. And so that that helps keep us going. Can you imagine the, the minute that somebody starts coming into the clinic, you know that physically you are going to watch them continue to cycle down. And so I think of the enormous emotional investment that the ALS clinic people give, and they're just wonderful. And apparently the feeling Kramer has for the staff is mutual. Dr. Kramer has approached his disease uh, in his own way, uh, as all patients do. What I've really admired about what he has done uh, is he has turned it into an opportunity. He has a blog. Uh, He has reached out to the ALS community. He has uh, reached out to you. It is amazing to see what he's done. I was visiting with a patient in our ALS clinic, and they had questions about uh, some of the therapy options and um, just where to go with a specific problem that they were having. And I, I, I told them uh, my opinion, and they nodded, and the patient looked at, uh, at their family and said, that's what Bruce Kramer said. And so I, I was sort of validated by, uh, <laughs> by, uh, by, by Bruce's expertise. And so uh, and that was just a sign to me that, that he has touched a lot of people and, uh, and he's helping people. And uh, it's really gratifying to see that. Bruce Kramer became known in the ALS community and wider community as someone who faced his fate with grace, candor, and courage. That doesn't mean he didn't experience grief over circumstances that he would never willingly have chosen. There was grief and sadness for Bruce and his beloved family. But he found the discipline of living in the moment the remedy that held most of the fear and grief at bay, most of the time. I'm just thinking about what I see right now. There's a a kitten asleep on a chair, and he just looks so peaceful. And there are pretty flowers that Ev has bought um, just to brighten the room a little bit. We have a lot of light pouring in, even though it's an overcast day. And all of that serves to be part of the moment. It's a moment that I can be in harmony with and feel uh, very much a sense of peace, a sense of joy, and I can hold apart those things that would compromise that experience. Yet, Bruce, like a a well-fortified dike, there have to be leaks even if you're trying to hold that fear and grief at bay by being in the moment, how do you deal with that? Oh, I leak all the time. I I don't want anyone to think that I'm not sad. I am sad. I um, 
this life is such a beautiful gift. And I've come to realize more and more what I suspected long ago. And and this sounds very idealistic and very romantic, but what I suspected was that in the end, it was friendship and love that really mattered. And what I'm discovering is that in the end, it is friendship and love that really matters. And that that creates, in so many ways, a pool of sadness from which I emerge to experience the next day and the next. But it's not despair and it's not grief. It's just sad. Every day I, I feel that sense of loss, but it doesn't feel like I'm processing it to get it over with and then get on with my life. Getting on with my life is getting me to my death. And so I'm kind of holding that at bay. I want to ask about regret. And here's why. As you know, my dad died earlier this spring. And what came out of his death in the grieving process was, for some of us in the family, regret of things not done, of things not said. My question to you is, how is letting go of regret part of grieving for you? Well, I I don't let go of regret. I found that regret is a very good teacher. So I'm not, I mean, the idea of no regrets, man, that, that just, that strikes me as very oddly immature. I've got a lot of regrets. In those regrets, I've had the opportunity to move beyond the destructiveness of the guilt and shame that often comes with our regrets. Regret is like a mountain road where it's very narrow and you're right on the edge. And on one side is another side of the mountain that you have to climb. What are you going to learn? What are you going to become? On the other side is the abyss of guilt and shame, which you can fall into and never get out of. Guilt doesn't teach you anything. Shame doesn't teach you anything except that you're capable of it. And it's such a human way for us to react to our own regrets. Regret, on the other hand, is something that if you can follow that ribbon on the side of the mountain and turn yourself toward what's above you, it's something that can bring you into a humanity that you, you really can be happy with. Um, a listener sent me a note about you, Bruce, and made this comment and was marveling at how you have lived your life, how you're living your life with ALS. And the listener says, instead of pulling in, Bruce Kramer has expanded and opened to the experience. And this listener was just amazed at that. But as you expand, are you not made more vulnerable? And I would think that that would scare a lot of people. How have you, how have you dealt with that vulnerability? That is a 
remarkable observation by your listener. The expansion, in many ways, when we breathe and we breathe in, we feel like we're expanding. We're expanding our rib cage. We feel that expansion. And then as we breathe out, we feel ourselves compressing around that. And what we try to learn to do in yoga is to breathe in with that expansion and then expand more as we breathe out. In that expansion is a projection of of our humanity, of who we are at our very core as human beings. And in some ways, this long winding process of dying with ALS has been an exhale for me in a yogic sort of way where I've been granted the ability to expand into a greater universe in the exhalation. Is there vulnerability in it? What? You're going to kill me? No. There is vulnerability, of course. There's vulnerability in everything. But I'm already vulnerable. I mean, I'm a man who can't move his arms or legs. What more vulnerability could you want? So vulnerability actually opens me to that expansion. It allows me to connect far more with this world that I have come to love so much. And in that, I think, is really the gift of life, that we really are meant to expand into our humanity. And that's a real question for us to ask, to judge ourselves by. Have I been human enough? I think the expansion and the vulnerability are very human. It's when we retract and protect that we go back to the reptilian fight or flight. I'm afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of here. This is life, and this is the way life works. On the next Living While Dying, an ALS story, the lessons of dis-ease for budding leaders.